verse 1 to 7. When he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it onto the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. Chapter 11, verse 15 to 19. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, or the seventh angels sounded, sounded his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you. Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. this oh watch this <clears throat> forget that guy That's part of a nine-minute video, and it's all kind of like that, but it's pretty cool. So when you're seated high above, what do you see? You see a horse galloping across the field. Imagine being a member of the band. What do you see? You see the people around you. You see the field and the grid lines that tell you where you need to be. 
You see the instruments. You see the color of the uniforms. It's easy to approach Revelation like that, especially these chapters. Um, It's tempting to focus on what do the seven trumpets mean? Who are the locusts with crowns and hair like women's hair and teeth like lion's teeth? Who are the two witnesses of chapter 11? What are the band members wearing? And we need to sit high above the field, high above the book, to see the revelation of Jesus Christ across the pages of Revelation, across the field. When I looked at this passage, Revelation 8, 9, 10, 11, um, there was too much that I did not understand. So after several hours, I went to the commentaries. And there I found phrases like, it may be that, or probably, or perhaps is a reference to, etc. In other words, they don't know either. Then I thought of three questions that I should have thought about like 10 hours before this. How does this point to Jesus? What did this passage mean to its original hearers? And how does this fit into the flow of the whole book? And then I read a pastor's take on this passage. And I realized I was approaching the passage like a band member on the field, like a scholar and not a pastor. And once I took my seat high above the field, it made sense. I still don't know what the specifics mean, but I can see the big picture. Chapters 8 through 11 are a single unit of text, beginning with the angels being given the seven trumpets and ending with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And it can be divided into four parts. One, the sounding of the first six trumpets, chapters 8 and 9. The vision of the angel with a little scroll in chapter 10. The two witnesses in most of chapter 11 and then the sounding of the seven trumpet and the doxology at the end of chapter 11. So let's go through it. In 8 verse 1, with the lamb opens the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then the angels are given the seven trumpets. So the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. In verses... 3 to 5, we see the answer to the martyr's prayer in chapter 6. Sovereign Lord, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? So chapter 8 is a response to this prayer. And the angel takes the coals from the altar underneath which the souls of the martyrs are and flings them to the earth. And the first six seals are the judging, the avenging of their blood. So at the end of this trumpet, end of the seventh trumpet, we read, the nations rage, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So what are the first six trumpets? The first trumpet 
Hail and fire mixed with blood are thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Hail and fire were the seventh plague in Egypt. In fact, plagues one, seven, eight, and nine are reproduced here. And one can't help but wonder if the judgment on Egypt and the releasing of Israel to life, to God, to the promised land, is not just uh, a picture, a symbol of what Christ has done for us in releasing us from slavery to sin, but maybe also a picture of what happens at the end times. We don't know. Also, this number one-third, somehow that's a significant number in Revelation 2. It's mentioned in each of the first of the four trumpets and in trumpet number six. And in chapter 12, we see Satan taking a third of the stars of the angel and flinging them to earth. So, again, we don't know what it means, but it's significant. The second trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and the third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and the third of the ships were destroyed. Some people think that the burning mountain is Babylon. There's some indication in Jeremiah that that might be true. Um, I should also mention at this point, you got a white insert in your bulletin that pairs up a whole bunch of these scriptures in Revelation with other scriptures in the Bible. So obviously I don't have time to share them all, but it's there for your uh, current reading if you're bored by me, and your later reading if you're interested. So, so the... the uh, um, in Revelation, the possible connection is there. Some people think that this mountain is Jerusalem, destroyed by Rome in AD 70. Some think it's Vesuvius, a volcano near Rome, which in AD 78 literally was a mountain flaming thrown into the sea. And of course, some think of it in conjunction with the end times. We don't know. The third trumpet is the making bitter of fresh water and people dying of it. This is the opposite of what God had done in the desert, taking the bitter water and making it sweet for Israel. Jeremiah says, This is what the Lord says, the God of Israel. Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. The fourth trumpet sees a third of the sun, the moon, and the stars struck so that a third of their light is darkened for the third of the day and the third of the night. And again, does this mean they each shine at two-thirds two full strength? Does it mean that for a day and of the day and of the night, they're shut off? Like an ash cloud from Vesuvius, or like the plague of darkness on Egypt, or like the day of the Lord, or like all of them in John's time, past, present, and future? We don't know. You're going to hear, by the way, we don't know a lot in this passage. 
But these first four trumpets affect, in turn, the earth, the sea, the fresh water, and the sky. All the facets of creation is like God's undoing creation so that he can be ready to recreate the new heavens and the new earth. And then an eagle flying overhead proclaims three woes that accompany the sounding of the last three trumpets. When the fifth angel sounds his trumpet, a star falls from heaven to earth, and he was given a key to the abyss or the bottomless pit. Now, the one falling from heaven to earth, Isaiah 14, verse 12, which I think is a reflection of um, Satan, the evil one, says this. How you are fallen from heaven, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Isaiah 14, 12, and 15. 2 Peter 2, verse 4, speaks of angels kept literally in Tartarus, or the underworld, until the day of judgment. And when Jesus healed the, the man from a legion of demons, they said to him, don't send us into the abyss. So these three taken together, I think that this is Satan given the ability to open the abyss and release the angels, the demons that are in there to wreak havoc on mankind. From the abyss comes the cloud of creatures, locusts with stings like scorpions who have the power to torment but not to kill man for five months. People will long to die, but they won't be able to. These creatures harm the greenery, or can't harm the greenery, or those who are sealed for God. They have faces like human faces, hair like women's hair, teeth like lion's teeth, breastplates like breastplates of iron, noisy wings like a lion's roaring, tails that sting like scorpions. And these, whatever they are, are clearly demonic. They have as their king the angel, fallen angel, of the abyss, whose name is Abaddon, or Apollyon, Hebrew, Greek, and whose name means destroyer. And this is the first woe. The sixth trumpet has four angels, bound angels, which implies they are bad angels, fallen angels, released to kill a third of mankind. And the means by which they do this is an army numbered literally twice 10,000 times 10,000. And their description, too, is pretty fantastic. Breastplates the color of fire, jewels, and sulfur. Horses with heads like lions who breathe fire, smoke, and sulfur. Tails like serpents' heads. And no, I don't know what this means. Hal Lindsey seems uh, incredibly helicopters. But no army on earth has ever been or is this big. But the amazing things happens in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by, the, by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality 
for their thefts. This is stunning. After the direct wrath of the Lamb and the indirect wrath, demons released to kill a third of mankind, they cling to their sin. No repentance. And whether all this stuff has to do with plagues on Egypt, the destruction of Jerusalem, all of history or the future, people aren't able to repent. They sooner hang on to their evil than surrender themselves, even to what is good, to what is bad. Pharaoh, when Egypt was being destroyed by plagues so that everyone knew who God was, still refused to let the Hebrews go. Hitler, when the Allies were at the very gates of Berlin, still believed he would win the war. The Jews, with God walking among them, still crucified him. And today, peoples whose lives are falling apart relationally, financially, emotionally, still refuse to repent, to let go. It's the human condition, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And yet, to repent is to find life. To surrender is to win. To give up your life is to find it. And I don't know if you've ever repented, ever given your life in its entirety to Jesus, but you need to. You need to. And not just in light of the final judgment. Actually, to repent, to escape the final judgment is the worst possible reason to repent. Faith is not cosmic life insurance. If one is thoughtful, we say they're pensive. So to repent is to change your mind, change your way of thinking, Embrace a whole new perspective on the world. And it's a perspective that says, wait a second, I'm not in control here. And real full life is not where I thought it was. God is real. God is good. I need him. And it is right to worship him. So repent and surrender, not, to, not just to avoid judgment in hell, but it's worth doing because it's a path to real, to a path to full life. God is the answer to all your deepest questions. So with the sounding of the six trumpets, all hell is breaking loose. Peter Hyatt writes, Whether we look back in time and see Mount Vesuvius, plagues, and the fall of Jerusalem, whether we look in the paper today and see earthquakes, disasters, and demonic activity, whether we look into the future and see predicted seismic activity in California, global warming, and Armageddon, no matter which direction we look, the message that comes across loud and clear, this is a God-condemned, cursed, damned world, and you don't need helicopters to tell you so. As you read this, missionaries are being killed. People die in wars, famines, and natural disasters. 
Afflicted by demons, men rape little girls and murder people for sport. The creation literally devours itself. One organism lives off the death of another. The world calls it survival of the fittest, and we think it's normal. But it's not normal. The scene changes here. John now sees an angel who looks incredibly like Jesus in a cloud of glory, a rainbow over his head, face like the sun, legs like pillars of fire, voice like a lion. This is the description of Christ in chapter 1. And he stands upon the ocean and the land, and he lifts his hand and swears by God Almighty that there will be no more delay. Judgment has fallen, terrible judgment. And still mankind does not, will not repent. So John, instructed to approach the angel and ask for the scroll he is holding, is told he must eat the scroll. It tastes good, but ends up turning his stomach. And he is told he was, must once more prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So he ingests the message. It's sweet. It tastes good. God's word is good to him. But it's bitter. It has to prophesy bad news. The fragrance of Christ is both fragrant and the stench of death, depending on where you're standing. He's told to measure the temple. Measuring in both Zechariah and Ezekiel is a sign of protection. Well, who is being protected? The temple, the one people of God in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2, verse 22, 21, excuse me. The outer court, the court for the nations, will be trampled on for 42 months. And during these 42 months, God will have two witnesses. This is a very cryptic segment of Revelation, by the way. Who are the two witnesses? They're described in terms that remind us quite deliberately of Moses and Elijah. They have fire that comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. They can turn off the rain. They can turn water into blood strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So are these Moses and Elijah sent to earth to prophesy to the nations? Are they two witnesses contemporary to the fall of Jerusalem? Are they two witnesses unknown to us in the end times? Are they representative of the law and the prophets, the two witnesses to Jesus historically? Do they represent the scriptures and the church, the two witnesses to Christ throughout history? We don't know. What we do know is that the beast from the abyss, Satan, will attack them and kill them. The nations will look upon them and laugh and rejoice. So perhaps these two make up the full complement of martyrs promised in chapter 6. But after three and a half days, number three and a half is also significant in Revelation, they are resurrected 
and ascend into heaven in a cloud of glory. Then another earthquake hits, and a tenth of the city collapses, and 7,000 people die. And then, and only then, do people give glory to God, not in worship, but in an acknowledgement of defeat. But it's too late. The time for mercy is gone. The final judgment has come. And so, so through history, through the destruction of Jerusalem, through the destruction of Rome and Babylon, through end times and judgments, whether what we've read to this point has to do with any or all of this, judgment has fallen and the people have refused to repent. People have refused to acknowledge the Lord as Lord. And through this long period of grace, they have refused. So grace has been pulled back. The period of, of grace is over. And final judgment has come. And now, it's too late. The second woe has passed. And then the seventh and final trumpet is sounded. And instead of silence in heaven, there is noise, there is loud voices, and they say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and destroying the destroyers, Abaddon, of the earth. So Christ has now established his reign, and sin is no more. He has pulled, poured out his wrath. He's judged the nations, the nations that John prophesied about, the nations that have trampled the temple, the nations who rage against God. And he has rewarded his servants, the prophets and the saints. And then verse 19, chapter 11. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. See, the temple, uh, the tabernacle that Moses has built was a copy. When Moses was ready to build it, God says, see that you made, make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on a mountain. This is a prototype. Here is where God lives. Here is a real ark. Here is a place from which people can stand in the very presence of God. And here, too is the destruction of the earth, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, back to my three questions in reverse order. How does this fit into the whole book through all of Revelation? Um, at this point... The story is ended. God is ready to recreate the earth in chapter 21. 
from chapter 12 and onward, we kind of step backwards and see the whole story from heaven's perspective. All of this is not just a battle from an on-earth perspective, but there is a great in-the-spiritual-realms perspective, reality. So we're going to walk, walk through that in the next couple of weeks. What did this mean to the original hearers? Because the book of Revelation was written as a letter to seven distinct churches in a certain province of Asia. It means that the forces of evil would be defeated. Even if they lost their lives in the persecution that they faced, it was still good for them to remain faithful to Jesus because the story hadn't been finished yet. And to recant to save their lives is to lose. Forget them to die for the sake of Jesus would be to stand in victory on the final day. So be faithful. That's what, that's what it meant for them. And how does this text point to Jesus? In chapter 6, 1 and following, this is the wrath of the Lamb. It has always been the wrath of the Lamb. The plagues of Egypt were the wrath of the Lamb. Jude verse 5 says, Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. When Jesus walked on earth, Jesus said to the Jews because of their rejection of him, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. On the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Um, we've already seen in Revelation 6 that this is the wrath of the Lamb. It's, it has always been throughout history the wrath of the Lamb. So the message for us today is very simple. Is this. When the Lamb takes his throne, whose side will you be on? Whose side will you be on? Will you be among the righteous or the wicked? If you're a Christ follower, however weak, you are righteous. If you're a pretty nice guy, but haven't affirmed that Jesus is Lord, you're the wicked. You're either with the Lamb for eternity or without him. Scripture peels all the ambigu ambiguity away and puts it in two black and white terms, righteous, wicked. Are you in the temple? Or are you among the nations that trample the outer courts? Are you a witness for Jesus? Or are you among those who laugh at their persecution? Are you a servant of God or the object of wrath? One or the other. Why is Jesus called the Lamb? We were all among those who refused to believe that Jesus is Lord. Refused to let him be Lord of us. We were all in the way of judgment. And nor could we do anything about it. Our sin against the infinitely holy God was infinite. 
But God insisted on saving us from his judgment. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb of God for our sin. And to once again live with him as Lord is the best way to live. To live without him as Lord is a sure path to judgment. So as we said last week, be faithful. So whose side are you on? Is not Jesus' side or Satan's side. They're not opposites. Satan, like you, has chosen a side. It's Jesus or not Jesus. Satan is on the not Jesus side. What side will you be on? Think about it. Have you thought about it? If not, today is a day that you need to think about it. When the service is over, come to the front. Talk to me. If there's someone with you that you trust, talk to them. But don't let this morning go by without asking yourself the question, Whose side am I on? Whose side am I on? In a few minutes, we'll celebrate the lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And I'm preaching early because we have a praise time, the prayer, the communion for you to think about what you've just heard. Whose side are you on? Let's pray. When the seventh trumpet was opened, there was loud voices in heaven. And I pray, Lord God, that you would speak with a loud voice through the noise that surrounds our hearts, through the noise of our lives, speak loudly, speak clearly of your reality and bring conviction so that anyone who is not on your side will be confronted with that. And not just confronted with the reality, but be confronted with the choice that needs to be made. O Lamb of God, we worship you. You give us life, and we will worship for eternity. To you be all praise and glory and wisdom and honor and blessing. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen.